My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egber. This is the official podcast, the Els for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name. And Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not on the podcast, I'm part of our growing research team and a tennis coach. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gaps of each department like glue. I am also autistic. This is our 17th episode of the podcast. Summer is almost gone with special guest Mindy York of the Baby Outer Swim School. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on the written, rec- on the written record for all of you for autism fans. So firstly, we want to start with some news and updates about the foundation. Episode 16. Tune on to our last episode, episode 16, where we talked to our rec coordinator, Kelly Coots, about why exercise and recreation are important to members of the autism community. She has had decades of experience working with the special needs community on this topic, and with the Olympics and Paralympics running this year, I would recommend for everyone to tune in. Schools reopening. Both our learning center, lower school, and our learning academy, high school, are admitting students back onto their campus grounds. There, the students will be back in their environments that many of them may have missed since the transition to limited in-person learning. I'm also sure that many of our educators have missed seeing them in person too. The Learning Center and the Learning Academy are public charter schools meant for individuals with autism overseen by the foundation. The Learning Center takes in kids ages three to 14, pre-middle school, and the Learning Academy is the high school. In these schools, students will learn many important developmental, vocational, social life skills, along with getting the needs of education that will suit them. More information will be provided in our show notes. A new session, and this is about the fall programs. Our new session of recreation services will begin August 16th, including our sports programs and reach and teach through the arts. Make sure to visit our events calendar on our website, which should be finished when this gets uploaded, and our current recreation schedule for more details. Also, if you're interested in our other programs, they should be on the calendar too. So something very personal to me is going on this month besides my father's uh, next birthday, well, 66th birthday. So August is a special time for my family. Besides my father's birthday, there is also August 16th, which is also the day Elvis Presley passed, which is when my parents will celebrate their 40th anniversary this year. Um, Yes, four decades of marriage. My parents met on a blind date after my father completed his road trip to California, where he was trying to find himself. And he went back to Maryland, where he went to see an allergist who happened to be the cousin of my mother. My father was interested in studying law, and my mother was interested in computer science, and she was new in town. What started as a blind date ended up becoming a wedding just a few years later with Pachelbel's cannon playing, 
and my parents dancing to Ann Murray's Could I Have This Dance, which was a hit a year before. Buoyed by this interest in each other, I was born five years later in June of 1986 as a very, very, very late wedding gift. Through the troubles, through the travels we've had as a family, the milestone anniversary has been pretty special to us. Bells got renewed by an Elvis impersonator in Las Vegas, where we danced to the uh, tune of Viva Las Vegas. Cruises were taken, and this year we are heading out to New Mexico and Colorado to celebrate. To enter into an agreement to spend with a partner for 40 years takes a lot of devotion, trust, interest, and dedication. So, Nate, as usual, whenever we go through one of these uh, things, how has <laughs> marriage impacted you? Merrick, I like how you always find a way to tie me in to these, uh, these personal updates. It's, it adds a really nice touch to our show. Yeah, so, you sound like you've been attacked. <laughs> no, I will gladly heed, heed this question. And I just want to start off by saying that, you know, getting married to my wife, Jen, was the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I'm not just saying that because she's potentially listening. But um, getting married and just being in uh, relationship with her has um, has really driven me to try to be the best version of myself and it's it's been a relationship that's supported me through some difficult times and also through some of the best times and it's uh, I think the biggest impact that it's had on me is just wanting to to be the best I can because um, you know that there's someone, someone else in your life who's very important to you that, that, that thinks, uh, you know, hopefully thinks you're, you're pretty great and, and you just want to do everything you can to continue to impress them and, uh, and make them happy. So to that extent, uh, I'm trying not to get too emotional here. But uh, marriage has been has been great for me. <laughs> How long have you been married to her? So we just celebrated our two year anniversary. Wow! Back in June, but we've actually been dating for almost ten years now. Um, we met in college at UNC Charlotte, where I was playing tennis, and she was a track athlete. And it just happened to be that we kind of ran into each other everywhere. Oh, 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 oh. I knew that that was coming up. Was that intended? Track <laughs> athlete running into each other? You don't miss a beat, Merrick. <laughs> I could have, yeah, I, I chose not to use a You now know reference. what happened. <laughs> Guess you ran into that too. <laughs> so yeah, it felt like it was meant to be, and here we are. Well, that's fantastic. Definitely fantastic. I I thought um well it's it's great because I thought that there that there was like an anniversary or two that you all had together, so 
that's sort of yeah. why I, I brought it up, but I really wasn't too sure. And <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I want to ask you what you all did for your second anniversary, if, if that would be uh, a little bit too much, but I'm just uh, really, really glad though that you all have been marrying for, married for two years and the dating doesn't really count, okay? <laughs> my parents dated for yeah. like a few years before they got married too i put it in there but you know nobody really it's not like i've known you for like 15 years i've been married to you for 15 years but i i, I don't really it's nobody cares about the dating process right right it only starts once you make those vows and and do it officially but Hey, listen, I appreciate you bringing it up on the show. And I also want to give a shout out to the, to the Els for Autism Foundation, because when, uh, when, when everyone found out that my wedding was a couple weeks away, um, they actually, there was a, a staff meeting and a lunch where, you know, everyone gave me well wishes and, you know, it was just so excited for me. And, and that's something that's, that stuck with me today and, and will, stick with me forever. So, um, yeah, thanks again for that. Yeah, I know uh, disgruntled people going up to you and saying how uh, marriage is just a complete hoax or, you know, <laughs> I've been married three times and I've never found it to be interesting or anything at all. It, it, was, it was great that you got all the right advice. There, all the there, right may, people. Be a, there may have been a few of those, uh, <laughs> you know, nudges of, of, of caution and, and hesitation, but Hey, just in one ear out the other, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. That's what you have to do. <laughs> you know, everyone has different experiences with that whole thing. So sure. some people yeah. find the right person. Some people don't, um, you know, it's in a way it's kind of like a, a crazy wheel of luck. <laughs> Because you just don't know sometimes that the person you're marrying or the person you're going to be with is going to be with you for the rest of your life or the person you're going to be dating is going to be the one you eventually marry. You just never know. One of life's great mysteries, right? Yeah, I mean, my, my parents actually saw like uh, five or six people before they, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go too deep into detail, but <laughs> my parents saw people before they ended up dating and you know, yeah, how it, it, it mattered enough for them to uh, be together for, you know, 40 years. Sure. Merrick, you know, we're talking a lot about swimming today and there's a lot of fish in the sea. So to, to commit and, and stick with that one person, that means a lot. It really does. And hopefully you and Jen will be together for 40 years, too. Oh, thanks, Mary. <laughs> that means a lot. Yeah. Yeah. If if enough, if the if the zombie apocalypse doesn't happen by then. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. So <laughs> back to our regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> Please excuse that disruption. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> All right. So uh, for the month of August, our golf challenge series is going from all the way out west to all the way out east for our locations. 
On the 9th of August, we made it an international field day by being at the club at Snoqualmie Ridge in Snoqualmie, Washington State, and at the Car Money Golf Club in DeWinton, Alberta, Canada. On the 16th of August, we are heading, or you may actually have heard us after we've headed back to Canada for the Grey Wolf Golf Course in Panorama, British Columbia. On the 23rd of August, we are heading back to the East Coast for the Harbortown Golf Links at Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. And lastly, on August 30th, the Golf Challenge heads all the way north to Cromwell, Connecticut to the TBC River Highlands. Please be sure to contact Paige Thomas, our events manager and Golf Challenge superstar for more details on our show notes. So the next item is the community report blog post, the 2020 to 2021 community report and my blog post for the month. Our 2020 to 2021 community report came out and is all about our adaptability in handling COVID-19 and how we've persevered and thrived and survived. And you will get to read the report when we uh, share it on the show notes. You can read a more succinct report when my blog article gets published on how we fare since the March 2020 lockdown and our upcoming reopening of our lobby and everything else. The blog article will be like a mega foundation update. And our our first live summer camp, which is a moving and grooving summer camp since our March 2020 lockdown, was in session for most of the month of July and the participation was phenomenal. A lot of clients came together following the standardized protocols and procedures while having fun on campus. A variety of activities allowed our clients to stay engaged and active. Make sure to bookmark the contact Kelly Coots, our rec coordinator, because the positions for campers will be filled. All right, so for this podcast episode, we would like to welcome Mindy York, who is a co-founder of the Baby Outer Swim School that is based in South Florida, which teaches babies, children, and adults how to save themselves from drowning if they crawl or fall into the pool. After experiencing a near drowning of her own child, she has been making a difference by teaching her state and nationally certified swim safety program called Turn, Kick, Reach. Because the technique is structured and repetitive, it has been very effective helping children and adults on the spectrum learn how to safely enjoy the water. Turn Kick Reach is taught to children and babies as young as nine months old over five consecutive days. And with practice with parents, they learn the swim safety steps needed to save themselves from drowning if they crawl or fall into the pool. Because of the high incident rates of drowning in the autism community, Mindy York hopes to keep making a difference to the clients on the spectrum. So thank you for being on our show tonight, Mindy. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Mindy, I would also like to say thank you for joining us tonight and thank you for the incredibly meaningful work you're doing with the Baby Otter Swim School. Uh, Speaking of which, could you tell us a little bit about the swim school and the history of the founders? as well as how you got involved with this project. Absolutely, and it's a pleasure to meet you, Nate, and thanks for having me. So Baby Otter Swim School was created 45 years ago by the other founder, Marlene Bloom. Marlene was an educator, and 
you know, her daughter 40 some years ago would just walk into the pool. And so she went to some of the, the larger organizations asking if someone could teach their child to swim. Well, no one, they said, well, we don't teach kids under the age of four, yet those were the children that were drowning. So Marlene being an educator said, okay, I'm going to create the program myself. So she spent an entire summer creating this and experimenting with her friends and family to be sure it worked. And it was based on lesson plans because that's how educators think. So each day is based on a lesson plan that the children complete. So she was able to create the Turn, Kick, Reach program. And it teaches a child, like you all said, as young as nine months old, what to do if they fall into a body of water. And it's very structured. So whether we have instructors in Miami or we have instructors in Orlando or Chicago, wherever we are, if everybody is teaching turn, kick, reach, they're all doing the same thing on the same day. And that's why it's so incredibly successful with these amazing children. So let me ask you a question, uh, Mindy. Um, why was it impossible to find any swim school within that area to teach uh, kids as young as uh, four or below? Well, 40 years ago, they just weren't addressing children that young. But, you know, like Marlene realized, those were the children that were drowning. So I'm, I don't really know why. I just know that it wasn't available. You know, a lot of it was mommy and me or parents coming in the water and playing the real water survival wasn't available hmm. i have to say mindy i'm impressed with the the consistency of the program and the systemization um, that you guys have have put forward um has thank you has the program has from your experience uh, have you seen it it uh, adapt over the years, um, still maintaining that kind of core um, lesson? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Our instructors, and by the way, we don't hire teenagers. Most of my instructors are moms themselves, have a lot, a lot of training. You know, we have our own state certification here in Florida, and um, it's very important that our instructors are trained well. They have over I'm almost close to 40 hours of in-pool training that doesn't even include on land and shadowing instructors. So there's a lot that goes behind taking a child in the water. And then of course, there's additional training for our amazing children who are on the spectrum who need, you know, a little bit of tweaking, sometimes held a little differently, a little more patience, um, even though we do have an enormous amount of patience for them. And so that these children are, able to be successful themselves. And, and we have a tremendous success rate with them. Yeah, that's terrific. And speaking of the, the turn, kick, reach, swim safety technique, could right. you explain how this technique works to our listeners? Sure, I'd be happy to. So what we do, it's one-on-one. -on -one. We do not do groups. Our our theory is that a child learns better one-on-one. -on -one. So what they learn in the five days is how to put their face in the water properly using a set of commands, because it's very important that a child understands that their face is gonna go underwater and how to hold their breath, how to swim to the steps, swim to the wall from five feet out, 
and if they should fall into a body of water, how to turn around and get back to where they fell in and get out. So day one through four is working on steps and wall. So by the end of day four, they're swimming independently to the steps and independently to the wall. The fifth day is the life-saving, which is the magical turn, which is where turn kick reach came into play. Marlene is the pioneer of turn kick reach. And I'll tell you, I've been doing it for 35 years. And on the last day, it still never ceases to amaze me how thrilled I am to watch it all come together and just watch these kids and their success. And most important, how confident and happy they feel because they they can now swim. Yeah, absolutely. And so you start training babies as young as nine months old, as well as toddlers, youth and adults. Absolutely. How has it made a difference for children and adults who are on the spectrum from your perspective? Well, as a matter of fact, we just completed um, two adults um, in Orlando. And uh, well, the children, let's put it this way, they were 18. Well, they're adults, in my opinion. And it was just life-saving because it's an entirely new world because now there's a life skill. Remember, a lot of times families like to go on vacation. And when they're on vacation, they want everybody to enjoy. So if these children can have a life skill, they can actually go in the water and swim as well. The younger children with autism, you know, we give them so much confidence and we hold them in a way that they understand. And we always use the phrase, you can do it. And we have them repeat back to us. So they understand they can do it. They believe in themselves. And when they do it, they come up and they go, I did it. And they're so happy. We're so happy. And we, I mean, we know they're going to complete the program and so many parents go, you know, they sit there and they cry at the end and they're going, oh my God, like I just, I didn't expect my child to be able to absorb this and be able to accomplish what you told me they were going to accomplish. So it's just an all around feel good feeling by the end of the week to watch them. You know, some of them don't want to put their face in the water. And then when we show them how amazing it is to be able to put your face in the water by the end of the week, we can't get their heads out of the water. It's just, it's amazing. Yeah, I have so much admiration for the work you guys are doing. Um, oh, thanks, you know, Nick. I, I worked. Uh, I worked as a tennis coach with the the Ells Foundation, and also was involved in acing autism. And it's it's exactly like you're saying. It's that you know, once you you help them to reach that goal, it's like there's a feeling of autonomy there, and and like there's been mastery of a skill that just is so um, creates so much excitement in them. And, and it's just, it's contagious also to families and, and coaches and, and everybody involved. Incredibly. It's, you know, the instructors come back and they're just, you know, full of emotion and they're like, Oh my God, it's just amazing that, you know, we know we can do it. It's, you know, convincing the parents and, and the children just, you know, watch the process it works and just to watch them going oh my god i can swim now and you know we go all the way up to swim team training so we take them through all of our levels and it's life-changing it's a life skill for any child that takes swimming lessons it's a life skill especially here in florida <laughs> yes definitely lots of swimming opportunities around us. <laughs> yeah 
So I'll pass it off to Merrick here. So I know that the General Olympics are, uh, have been uh, over. Um, and the Paralympics, which actually will have Lawrence Sapp, who, is, who I'm going to who I'm going to talk about later in this broadcast is going to be uh, an alt- uh, individual on the spectrum with an intellectual impairment who is going to compete for the gold at the Paralympics um, later this month. But then in 2022, uh, we also have the Special Olympics in January of 2022 that are going to happen. And yeah. uh a question that I like to ask, because this is actually quite amazing, um, just how many gold and silver medals you can have. And I just want to ask you about one of the students that you on the spectrum who has won 25 gold and silver medals in the Special Olympics. And I love to talk about her. She is my hero. She is one of our ambassadors. She is an ambassador for our school. Her name is Layla Crahan. And I want to say 10 years ago, I don't feel that old, but 10 years ago, um, her mom, who's an amazing individual, was looking for swimming lessons for Layla and for Indiana, Indy. Um, She's got two amazing autistic children and couldn't find anybody in the uh, Fort Lauderdale area that would take the children, said they're not teachable. So her pediatrician and the health department said, go to Baby Otter. Anyway, they came to us and the kids graduated their, our first level with flying colors and went through all of our level, all of our levels. And we'll fast forward 10 years. Layla has, as you mentioned, um, received 25 gold and silver medals in the Special Olympics. And she will be participating in the 2022, I believe in surfing. Layla has become an amazingly strong, confident young lady. And this started off from swimming because now she believed in herself. She's amazing in the water. I hate to say it, that she can leave me in the dust. I'm telling you. So the student now beats the teacher and she's incredible. Um, She just did the crossing for cystic fibrosis on a paddleboard and was able to sustain herself for about three and a half hours in those incredibly difficult um, waters. She's just a remarkable young lady. I, I, I can't talk enough about her. Wow. That's definitely someone to hold in esteem as a Special Olympics athlete to really, really set your eyes on as an inspiration. Without a doubt. And uh, she went with us to Chicago for the... Uh, Special Olympics for the 50th anniversary, and she spoke there and, uh, you know, gave such an incredible speech how, you know, we believed in her and we helped their family. And because of that, this is where she is today. And she's just an amazing young woman. Hey, isn't it it every teacher's goal to be exceeded by their protege? (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> yep, it sure is. <laughs> you got that right, Nate. <laughs> and boy, uh, does she, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, I definitely will. After this uh, broadcast ends, I'm definitely going to look her up because, uh, yeah, it's quite a monumental accomplishment. Um, Incredible. She's a, she's a rock star. 
So uh, right now, drownings are at an all-time high. Why is that, and why is drowning prevention so important for families with young children on the spectrum? So drownings are up 70%. There was actually a pediatrician that went on the air, and in his hospital in Orlando, he came out and said they're up 600%. So here's what's happening, you know, through the pandemic, parents are home, they're busy on the phones, they're doing Skype calls, everybody's trying to, you know, micromanage whatever we were dealt with. And kids are, you know, they're curious, they want to get outside. A lot of parents, we've had parents of near drowning children recently has said, oh my God, I turned off my alarm on my door so it wouldn't interrupt my Zoom call and didn't realize my child got out. So the problem is, is that there's water everywhere. It's very, very hot, obviously. And kids, kids are home. So everybody's been home more. So that's how we in our industry are feeling that that's the problem that's going on now is that, you know, because of the heat, because of parents being preoccupied, because everyone's working from home, their children are getting out, they're curious. Water's like a magnet, it attracts these children. They're going into the water. And then without, you know, any knowledge of what to do, there's just so much tragedy that's happening. Hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely uh, terrible. And uh, yet I'm, I will add that it's just so preventable. It really, really is. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, like I always... a. Sorry. I always say to parents when I'm on the air, I always say, drowning knows no season. The pools do not go away when kids go back to school. The pools do not go away because it's Thanksgiving or Christmas. It, drownings know no season. Your children need to learn to swim. It's just like I say to them, you would never put your child in a car without a car seat. Children in Florida should have to have swimming lessons to prevent these drownings because together we can reduce the horrific statistics that are going on in our state right now. Yeah. I mean, and you're definitely correct about there being no season because it's not like, you know, the pool will freeze over or anything at all like that. The pools are basically, you know, you can go into these pools at any time during the year. And exactly. it's like I said before, the broadcast, I think that anyone, especially if they live in Florida, should learn or should know how to swim. It's, it's almost like common sense to want to know how to swim. I mean, it's, it's just, to me, it's, it's a major, major, major thing. And I was taught how to swim. I don't remember how young I was when I was taught, but I'm really, really grateful that I was. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a great swimmer or anything like that, but it's one of the things that I can do that I have fun with. I enjoy it. I enjoy going into the water and swimming and the like. And I, I just, I, I find it to be really relaxing and I just find it to be, you know, something I can do. I don't tire of it. I don't exhaust of it. And it's just mm -hmm. really, really uh, fun to do. And it's just, you know, if 
if something happens and I have to be in the water and I have to, you know, do something, I always know that I can do something to get myself out of it. And like I said, even if I'm not great at doing it, or maybe I'm not that fast or something like that, I still know how to do it. And that's very important. It's very, 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 very true. And the health benefits of swimming are just incredible. You know, it's just, it's an entire body workout, you know, where it, there's not so much strain on your body when you're swimming. I know that when I need to clear my head and I need to just feel better going in and doing 20 laps, I feel like a different person by the end of the day brings oxygen to the brain. It's been proven to help with, um, um, dyslexia, um, not dyslexia. I'm sorry. Um, just lost my words. I'm sorry. Um, there you go. I must be suffering from it. I need to go swimming. Well, yeah. So, the, right. The effect on, on dementia. There I go. And yeah. It, definitely. You get great cognitive stimulation from correct from swimming and, and exercise in general boost those nice dopamine levels. So ter- terrific for mental health. Yeah. Terrific for it. So I hate to end this interview uh, with the final question, but I might as well. Um, So how can our listeners learn more? I'd love your listeners to check us out on our website, which is babyotter, B-A-B-Y-O-T-T-E-R.com, or give us a call at 888 swim kid which is 794-6543 and speak to one of my amazing staff they'll tell you all about the program and how we can make an impact on your children or yourself and remember we do adults you're never too old to learn to swim one of our ambassadors andre dawson who's a hall of fame baseball player he's been our ambassador for 17 years we taught him to swim at age 50 so anybody can learn at any age. That's powerful. It really is. No matter what, you know, you can always learn how to swim. Absolutely. Definitely a great message to leave on. So I want to thank you, uh, Mindy York, for providing your time with us to speaking about all these very, very important, uh, you know, all this important information um, about the Baby Outer Swim School, how important it is to the overall community and how important it is to the autism community. And like I said before, I will definitely check out Layla Crichton because- Crahan. Oh, Crahan. Okay, yeah, I will definitely check her out. And I think that uh, you're a very strong inspiration. And I, I am just really, really pleased that we got this chance to speak to you. Well, the honor is all mine. And I'm so grateful that you gave us the opportunity to take our message to the community and uh, help all of these families know that you know, the, their children can learn to swim too. Yeah, th- thank you, Mindy. This work is inspiring and uh, presenting this resource can be done no better than directly from its, its source. So uh, 
you know, thanks for helping us accomplish this. Thanks again for having us. I appreciate it. And now, as always, it is time to go over Today in the World of Autism, starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Chinock, and his fantastic research-oriented stories. Can't wait for these stories. Okay, we've got some good ones today. So the first one um, I'm going to talk about is actually from an article that was written for the Scientific American by Dr. Pamela Feliciano, who's the scientific director of SPARC, which stands for the Simons Foundation Powering Autism Research Through Knowledge. And SPARC is a very active organization. They're conducting a lot of meaningful research related to genetic testing in autism, but also behavioral factors and cognitive uh, findings as well. So in this article, Dr. Feliciano offers a new way of conceptualizing the social challenges of autism. And I found this conceptualization to be very interesting and just wanted to share it with you guys today. The first point made in the article is that many social characteristics found in individuals with autism spectrum disorder or ASD may be a function of impairment in predictive skills. So it's important to note that the human brain is extraordinary at predicting what comes next based on what can be recalled from previous experience. And the next point that's made is that although individuals with ASD are capable of making predictions, their predictions are sometimes flawed because they're weighted by what they are experiencing in the moment versus prior experiences that they can gather knowledge from. When the connections between an event and a consequence are very clear, people with ASD can learn them. But the real world is an ever-changing environment with a lot of complexity and sometimes contingencies and deviations are not as obvious. They're not as easily predicted in the moment. Spark was launched five years ago, again, uh, related to obtaining large data sets for genetic research on autism, um, as well as cognitive findings, even, even some brain imaging findings. And data is now also being collected to learn about the observable aspects of prediction. Two components can be observed. One is the ability to learn the connection between an antecedent and its consequence. And two, one's responses to predictable events. Recently on this topic, Dr. Pawan Sinha of MIT published an article which showed um, that individuals with ASD had very different responses to a highly regular sequence of tones played on a metronome compared to those without ASD. While people without ASD habituate to the sequence of regular tones, people with ASD do not acclimate to the sounds over time. So this is one example of how this prediction phenomenon can be studied in research. I'd like to also share a memorable quote from this article that was written by Dr. Feliciano, where she said that 
Every parent of a teenager has their share of challenges. And for me, an ongoing issue for my son is that he really seems to enjoy engaging in behaviors that will elicit a response from someone. Some of these habits have small consequences. For example, he loves to empty entire bottles of soap, detergent, and cooking oil. He also likes to throw things out of his window. More than once, I've been out walking the dog and noticed a pair of pants on the roof of our house. So I found that this is probably a quote that a lot of um, our listeners and, and parents who are listening to this, this podcast can relate to. And I think it's, it's really a, a valuable perspective offered here in this article. Uh, Merrick, what can behavioral therapists and parents take away from this theory? And why is it important to collect large data sets like the Spark Initiative is doing now? So I believe um, that part of this uh, deficit and predictions may have a little bit to do also with um, understanding, you know, the other individuals sometimes in your life, you know, um, I can basically go by personal experience where um, uh, years and years ago, and I think even to this day, I've made a joke that the favorite subject I like to talk about is myself, because, <laughs> you know, um, for me, I could sometimes take like four or five hours talking to someone and even if they're not interested in the same subject I am, I would just talk to them, talk my head off about a subject that they would not find that interesting at all. And sometimes it is difficult for me to distance myself from thinking about myself or thinking about, you know, what, what I am, where I am. Um, that kind of thing. And I think for other individuals with the condition, it's sometimes kind of difficult to register, you know, the full experience of people around you. And then there's also the, the interesting uh, contradictory nature where there's also a great big rush of empathy that happens, um, you know, where people really do feel like that they're, they're addressing all of the concerns and all of the uh, mentalities of the other person. So I think because it kind of feels like any kind of, you know, middle ground between being a complete empath and being completely, uh, you know, focusing on oneself, um, you know, it's it's more difficult, I believe, if if you aren't really registering uh, someone's mind waves as much as can be uh, attributed to other people. Um, and especially if it's very difficult for you to, you know, register any kind of sociality from others, then it may also be tied into a difficulty to predict things, because that would mean 
having a greater um, availability to noticing uh, all the different ways we socialize or we act and react as human beings. And if our center of empathy is going haywire, uh, wherever it can be, um, then it's not exactly going to fit into all the different categories and all the different social awareness factors that we can rush into regarding uh, the ability to predict what will happen next. I think from my own perspective, I like to think of myself as being empathetic. I also like to think of myself as being, um, you know, able to understand other people and able to think about what other people are saying and thinking about what other people are doing and getting a greater uh, ability to understand the full human experience. Now, of course, I'm an opinionated individual and I tend to sometimes have difficulty understanding certain other points of view, but I will say that on average, I have tried to build myself up to a greater individual with an ability to empathize because of, you know, it, it was 2013 and I know that this is gonna sound very personal, but bear with me. So uh, in 2013, uh, well, really at the end of 2012, you had probably one of the worst uh, mass shootings to occur in American history or probably in the history of the world when Adam Lanza went to that school in Connecticut and he went crazy. And uh, unfortunately, after that was when I tried to find out more and more about my Asperger's syndrome because that was what they uh, said he had. And I would see people who started to attribute ideas that people with Asperger's were violent or of low intelligence or anyone who is autistic uh, are of low intelligence, um, that it's fake or that it doesn't exist or that it should really, really be concentrated on almost like in the heat of the moment, many people were making these decisions and, uh, and thoughts that, oh, this person um, or, or people with this condition are cold, they lack empathy, they're cold-blooded and that kind of thing. And when I saw the, the symptom of lack of empathy appear again and again and again, I thought to myself, do people outside of my own purview, when people see me walking down the street and if they see any symptoms of autism in my character, are they gonna rush to judgment and think that I'm some kind of cold-blooded killer or serial killer or something like that? I was greatly impacted. And I also spent months upon months upon months of that year with the constant images of what happened that day burned into my brain, even if I wasn't there, even if I wasn't standing anywhere near, and I'm, I was in Florida at the time, I had never 
I, I had hardly been to Connecticut or anything like that, but I still had all the tragic images of what I thought it was probably like seared into my brain. And it was just really, really difficult for me to function because it was happening at such a rapid pace. Um, <clears throat> and it also, I one of my special interests is in video games and that got raked over the coals too. So I was in a very, very uh, dark place in my life during uh, 2013 because you had people talking about burning and destroying things that I loved. Uh, you had people trying to make my condition out to be like a sickness or something horrible. Um, all these rushes to judgment. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I, I don't really feel good. I don't really feel great. I feel like just bitter and angry and just really, really sad and depressed and just completely off the edge um i ended up writing some songs about it because i felt just so emotional by everything that had went on but like i said um besides clumsiness which i've of course will say that i have and a few other things it was that lack of empathy that got to me and so i guess almost inside myself, I was telling myself over and over again, am I empathetic? Am I able to empathize with people? Are these individuals who attribute that as a symptom, are they basically doing that out of a very clinical diagnosis symptom, or are they doing it out of a aspect that they are talking about this as, as a way of basically saying, beware the person with Asperger's. Beware them because they are not empaths. It was also when I uh, heard that people with Asperger's cannot get recruited into the army or the military or, you know, the Navy, any kind of branch of the military, they could not get recruited into because that was an excuse used. That, that was something that the parents of that guy used to make sure that he didn't get into the military. And I, I, I just, it was like, I learned a lot of things that day, but I don't remember if I learned anything that was really positive that uh, when it came to, you know, most of the year of 2013. And I, I, I just, I, I had to sort of shut down some of my social media and it was absolutely horrible. So, yeah, I thought to myself, am I really non-empathetic? So, well, as, as the years went by, um, I think I thought to myself, maybe I do have some empathy. And maybe if they were talking about it, maybe they were talking about it as a clinical thing. But. I, I do believe I've known people with the condition who are really, really empathetic. Okay, they're, they may be, you know, not exactly what you and I would call in that same way, but I do feel like that there are plenty of people out there who you can see on the street or anywhere who would challenge that notion, that assertion. Still, I believe that, that, um, 
in a way though, I do believe that there are some aspects of the condition that may make people think that the individual is not empathetic, um, but in a way it is processing empathy in a different way, which like I've said all the way at the very beginning, could have something to do with the conventional predictive patterns that, that we see in life. You know, someone who talks to someone for like four hours about a subject, that doesn't mean that they're uh, not empathetic. It means that they have an interest in that individual and they want the individual to know how interested they are in them. And they want the individual to know how much this person appreciates their company and the sense of community that comes from it. Um, that's a different way of expressing empathy than basically looking at the person and the person says, I'm tired or, or something, or the person is not that interested, but you know, the person just ends up going away because they think that they can see or they can take a verbal cue that that person is not interested in doing that. The other person uh, will go over, not notice whether the person is interested or not, and may carry on for a long time. And it may not be the best thing to do, but that doesn't mean that the person lacks empathy. It's just not conventional empathetic processing. But still, yeah. because we live in a world where conventions are designated as the best way to do things and the best way to go around things, I think overall it is that uh, maybe interpretation of empathy and maybe it is the interpretation of verbal cues, of social cues, of nonverbal cues, all that kind of stuff that goes into a great explanation as to why there are deficits in predictive uh, uh, knowledge and making the kind of predictions that are valuable to the individual. I'm sorry if that was like a long, long rant and maybe that's part of what, maybe I illustrated exactly why some people may think that people like me are non-empathetic, but <clears throat> I, I'm just, I, I just feel like getting, venting all these things out of me because I feel like that, the, that everything I say may have some valuable or important function for anyone who may be listening to this. Absolutely. There were, there were a ton of good points you made there. And I, I just want to make one comment quick. I think that, um, you know, what you were saying alludes to the, the double empathy um, concept when it comes to autism, which is that, you know, um, it's, not, it's not necessarily that individuals with autism are, are lacking in empathy or, or like you said, even, even desire to understand the other person and relate to them. But it, you could look at it as a two-way street, you know, it's, it's just maybe that there's different ways of expressing that for someone who's, who's neurotypical and, and maybe how we traditionally view empathy. Um, there's, there's a different way of thinking about that from how 
it's maybe expressed in people with autism. So it's, it's going to be important for us to continue to find ways to try to find that common ground and be able to, to, you know, close the gap. Um, but I, I definitely get what you're saying that it could, it can be hurtful to, to hear those, those things about, um, about people with autism, you know, and, and that does create kind of a harmful generalization that I don't think is, is true. I, I like to see it more as a double empathy issue. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, it's, it's just that we have to, I wouldn't say we have to open our minds up more, but we have to realize that there's not a single way we do things or we communicate things or we rhetoricize things that are always going to be, you know, 100% correct or 100% the way people conventionally think about these things, you know, it's like how in other cultures, some ways people uh, talk about things or the words that someone uses may be completely different than what we, we are used to as a culture. So in a way, it's almost like some parts of the experience are almost like a semi-culture onto itself in regards to social communication and the way we function as, as, as people and the way our brains work. I, I'm a member of a few Facebook groups that have to deal with, you know, support functions and questions related by individuals with the condition in any such way. And it's always fascinating to read what people believe is something, you know, that is unique to them, or it's even the littlest thing may have a completely different way of, of looking at things. And, and it's just, it's overall a, a very important thing to, to acknowledge when, because most of the time that we may predict about things, it usually has to do with other people. And it has to do with the way other people are and the way, you know, other people, whether it's a society, a community, um, even if it's just one person, that's still a, 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 a predictive notion. And anyone who is basically testing the ability to predict is also a person onto themselves. So I think that since much of it is funneled throughout, especially if you're not, you know, if you're not basically, you know, living out West and like a ranch by yourself. Okay. Um, You know, many, many individuals with autism are not going to face that kind of life for themselves. They're going to be, you know, talking to people or handling people or, or, you know, being in some kind of social strata for the rest of their lives, for five years, 10 years, two years, who knows how, how many years. And so that's what's in a way very important to, to know and understand. As far as large da- data sets, um, <clears throat> I, I think that uh, I will have to say this, and this is me being myself, it's not being, you know, this is not, you know, I'm not speaking on behalf of the foundation when I say this, but I think that the puzzle piece is a perfect representation of autism, in my opinion. 
And that's because there are so many things we still don't know. There are things that we maybe never know, or there are things that we may have to have a lot of analytical uh, reasoning and thinking about when it comes to what's going on in our minds. Um, because it is so much of a mystery and an enigma. You know, why is an individual, you know, maybe this individual maybe needs help on tying their shoes, but they can recite pi to like the 30th, you know, number or something like that. It, it's like, you know, what exactly is going on? And there is so much we still don't know. It's, it's such an enigmatic condition. That's partially why it's a spectrum, because it's so enigmatic. We don't know. And so we need to have, you know, a larger data set. We need to have, you know, a, a bigger, anything bigger or anything massive when it comes to data collection and research may yeah. be very, very important to us because, like I said, it's the spectrum. No, not every, um, no two people with the condition are going to be exactly the same. So you need a large data set not just because of that, but also because of how enigmatic the whole thing is. So, you know, you need as much of a grasp on it as possible because blindness and deafness and schizophrenia and all those things, it can be tied more to something that you can maybe understand more. But with autism, the name itself, the reasoning, people say, well, social difficulties and social communication, interaction, that kind of thing. But it's, it's not like, you know, it, there's never, a, there's not that much of a clear picture as to what that means. Like, what does it mean when it says difficulties and in interactions? What does it mean when it says difficulties in communication? What does it mean when it says anything like that? Does it mean, you know, someone talks your ear off for four hours? Does it mean repetitive focus? Does it mean not getting sarcasm or abstract language? What does it exactly mean? Because it was like when I was asking my parents all those years ago, well, what is Asperger's? They said motor skills. And I was at a loss, like, what do you mean by motor skills? And motor skills could encompass so many different areas. It's like, what exactly is it? Is it fine? Right. Is it gross? What are motor skills? And you go from there and it's like, that could mean like 500 different things. What exactly is that? So I, I think that the enigmatic sense of it all, really any way you can get that data to create a greater understanding of what this is, is very, very important to the overall sense of worth in the overall community. Yeah, you really hit the nail on the head um, with the heterogeneity of the condition. I think the only way for us to gain a keen understanding of functioning and just a variety of cognitive, behavioral, neurological aspects of this condition is through big data sets. And hopefully, you know, long-term, this will help us to better understand, you know, how to apply interventions and treatments programs that are best suited for 
the individual and also just, you know, subcategories within the condition. Um, so I'm going to transition into, uh, because it's the Olympics, it's, it's that time of year. I'm going to transition into a really inspiring story that came from the golf, uh, the women's golf event. And this is on Albane Valenzuela, who is a golfer that competed in the Olympics. And she gave up her last semester of college golf in order to turn pro and chase this dream. A large part of this dream included a moment spent uh, in glory with her 19-year-old brother, Alexis, who also happens to be her caddy. Alexis was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder at age three and could not speak for the first five years of his life. Doctors told the family he may remain nonverbal and would likely never be able to attend regular school. He is now fluent in three languages and is a sophomore at Southern Methodist University, where he is also a member of the golf team. Alexis's story is so inspirational that his sister Albane chose to write about his life for her college entrance exam. Alexis was supposed to caddy for Albane in the 2016 Olympics until they discovered in the weeks leading up to Rio that he was in fact too young to be a caddy. He walked outside the ropes that week, happy as always to support Albane as her number one fan. Mind he if I interrupt you, Nate? Yeah. How, okay, so how old do you have to be to caddy? What is like uh, the youngest age you can be to caddy for the Olympics? I believe it's 18 and up. Wow. So and you have to be an adult to caddy in the Olympics. Yes. Wow. And in Rio 2016, Alexis would have been about 15 years old at that point. And some of our, uh, some of the Olympians we have, you know, participating in the sport are what, like 14, 15, 13? Yeah, well, there was that, that diver, the 14-year-old diver from China who, who scored perfectly on three jumps and uh, took the whole world by storm. So you're right, you bring up an ironic point. Yeah, that diver will not ever be able to be a caddy until four years later. <laughs> so you can't participate in the sport. You can basically risk everything, flinging yourself into danger over and over again for the sport at the age of 14 or 15. But basically, if you want to walk around or you want to carry a golf bag or you want to like be in, the, uh, be in a golf cart or something like that, then, wow, you're way too young for us. <laughs> yeah, that's a very humorous point. I'm I sorry. I just, I, when you said too young, I was just thinking to myself over and over again, I wonder what that means. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. In spite of her perfect dives plunging into the water she will will not be able to serve as a caddy yeah. uh, if she desires yeah and it's oh skateboards yeah i was hearing about like a 15 year old skateboarder 
That is true. And basically the skateboard is like going up and up and up. What if the skateboarder hits her head on some concrete? Yes, there's a helmet, but you know, what if she breaks a leg or breaks a, a breaks a knee or something like that? But you know, that that's that's great for a 14 or 15 year old, but if you want a caddy, you know, good luck. We can't have you. <laughs> we, we yeah. you know, we forbid you from participating, but if you want to crack your your knee on the concrete on the pavement while you're skateboarding, that's completely fine. Oh yeah, we're we're all right with that. Um <laughs> <laughs> sorry. No, no none of these views are representative of the foundation. I, I want to make that clear. Okay. The foundation <laughs> doesn't have an official position on any of this. I just found that to be very interesting to me. Uh, interesting is one word to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyways, Alexis um, started a charity called Alexis for Autism. And he's now using this platform to organize golf tournaments in order to raise funds for autism research. The first one that he held in Geneva brought in nearly $350,000. Wow. And although the COVID-19 pandemic has slowed his efforts since, since then, his next goal is to raise money for people still struggling from Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas, where he grew up and went to high school. He's expressed a profound gratitude for the support that he's received from the golf world since openly speaking about his autism diagnosis. And I read more into this and he was, he was afraid um, to make his diagnosis public at one point because he didn't want to bring any negative attention uh, upon him or his sister, but he's, he stated that he's just been overwhelmed by the unanimous uh, positive support that he's received in the golf community. And I mean, I mean, a golf tournament, three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow, three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. My gosh, man! A single event. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Um. And so Albain finished 18th in the golf competition in this year's Olympics and is sure to be a rising star in the sport along with her very inspirational caddy. And Alexis, if you're listening to this by chance, we'd love to have you on the podcast at some point in time to speak about your, your organization. Or at least some way to connect with you. You yeah. know, I think you would be, if Alexis is listening to this, you would be very, very useful in some capacity to, to help us in whatever way, you know, there are, there are other ways you can help us besides, you know, being a guest on our podcast. Absolutely. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. So Merrick, we have regular siblings meetings at the Ellis Foundation why can the role of a sibling be so impactful in the life of an individual with ASD? And at the same time, how can having a sibling with ASD be impactful on the life of a neurotypical individual? Okay, so um, yeah, we do have what is called Sam Siv Stick Together. 
which meets like every month, once every month. And I think that the Autism Science Foundation or Autism Science Center is the one that is behind uh, helping us with the Sam Siv Stick Together. Uh, the name comes from Samantha Ells, who is the sister of Ben Ells, who is, um, you know, the, the son of Ernie and Liesel Ells, um, who was diagnosed with autism. And so uh, for her part, she decided to create a support group for siblings who have uh, siblings who have autism. And so that's as a way to like communicate with each other. And I think that that has been very, very successful. Um, I, we've had it for a while now and it's just, it's great to have that kind of group uh, exist, especially um, because there is also an incidence rate where both uh, siblings actually can have autism I think that there's like, you know, if one sibling has autism, there's, I think, a higher incidence rate of the other sibling having it too. So it's very interesting to hear, to hear of a neurodiverse, uh, you know, uh, siblinghood that exists. And I think that when it comes to your question, um, well, it's like with anything else, you know, it, it, if, if you know someone with a condition or it's like a tolerance starts at home. Uh, I could say that in a literal context because when you grow up with someone who has anything going on with them, you know, whatever it's a, if it's anything that has to do uh, with, you know, a condition, uh, disability or anything, then I would have to say the tolerance rate of handling anyone else or seeing or talking to anyone else with the same condition increases because of that person having firsthand experience with someone who has that condition. And that was actually what I heard when I uh, actually slipped into one of those uh, meetings was how the sibling has a greater top, has a greater affection or greater interest in making sure that individuals with autism are properly treated and are, are seen as remarkable human beings. And that if they have any friends or the like, then they, they want the friends to respect that individual who has autism. It, it's basically a whole family thing. And uh, because many individuals with autism have things where they aren't able to drive or they aren't able to do this or to do that, um, a sibling can be very, very important in that person's life because they'll be able to serve as that support system. They'll be able to uh, serve as, you know, uh, a support system for whenever that individual needs help in any which way. And they can also function as an educational system in case that individual needs help in 
talking to others or communicating to others. Um, it's, it's, it's very, very important that that kind of thing exists and that it, it is definitely something that, that is positive. You know, if you happen to have like a kid and that person is, you know, neurotypical and then the next kid is autistic, then that will be a very, very valuable learning experience for the family, for the sibling, uh, for anyone around that family. And it will allow, um, you know, a greater impact on, on it, it will basically be a positive, uh, a positive force for good within anybody's life. That's, and so I guess if, if you want to like summarize it, the way the individual of ASD handles the individual without in the family uh, is to look at that person for guidance and for support whenever that person needs, you know, like a ride to school or something like that, that could be very useful. And on the other end of things, that person can learn a whole lot about a world that they've probably never been exposed to if they hadn't had that sibling in their lives. It, it will allow them to create a greater sense of empathy, create a greater sense of understanding, uh, from tolerance to maybe even acceptance, it, it, I, I think that that ends up creating a greater bond that can allow the individual to feel more like, you know, more like that they're a part of things rather than they're against things. Yeah. So. That's really well said. And this comes from an only child, by the way. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah. You have like siblings yourself, right? I have three sisters. So they've definitely taught me a lot about empathy and, you know, how to gracefully lose an argument. Well, they, they also taught you, you know, from a early age, I guess, you know, uh, what, what women are like, what girls are like, you know. You go to a school and you get to see people, you know, male, female, non-binary, you know, as the whole thing goes and you get to meet people. And, you know, if you have like a sister, then it would be easier for you to meet people who are not, who are female than it is if you didn't have one because, then the sister could possibly say to you, okay, so, you know, how you are interested in talking about this. Well, maybe this person on, in the schoolyard would rather talk about this, or maybe this is a way you can uh, engineer yourself to, to, to be able to more understand this other person. So it, it allows you that, even if it just happens to be, oh, you're male and she's female, you know, and nothing deeper than that, that still can create a greater sense of understanding, especially sure. at an early age where that is much, much needed. Yes, I agree. 
<clears throat> I'm not saying that you're like uh, Mel Gibson and what women want, you know, all of a sudden, you know, a hairdryer and you're in, in a bathtub and all of a sudden you, you can hear what every woman wants. And then from there, you're, you're the most, uh, you're, you're the most empathetic individual when it comes to women. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that would certainly not be accurate. So <laughs> let's, let's shift gears. Now, <laughs> let's, let's talk, uh, let's talk a little bit about our highlighted athlete. Okay. So my first story is, um, Paralympics athlete, Lawrence Sapp. So the Paralympics started decades ago, originally as an organization devoted to competitive sports for World War II veterans with spinal cord injuries to becoming the alternative to the Olympics for athletes with disabilities. Unlike the more well-known Special Olympics, which focuses on athletes with intellectual disabilities, the Paralympics focuses on a wider umbrella of disabilities, but it's much more well-known to have athletes with physical disabilities as per the name a combination of paraplegic and Olympics. Every year that the Olympics takes place, the Paralympics also hopes to take place in that same year due to its advocacy that its athletes should be respected and treated like the Olympians of the non-disabled Olympics. This year on August 24th, the Paralympics will also take place in Tokyo, Japan. And one athlete with autism wants to show how strong he is as a swimmer. Lawrence Sapp was at the age of two when he started talking, when he was diagnosed with a developmental delay. Later, at the age of 12, he was diagnosed with an intellectual impairment. At the age of 17, while still in high school, he was diagnosed with autism. Throughout all that time, however, in his hometown of Waldorf, Maryland, he would end up beating back against any odds and become his own person whenever he swam. Starting at the age of four, Mr. Sapp navigated to swimming because of how much easier it was to remain focused on the sport, on the sport, how he felt like an equal to everybody else in the pool, and how fun it was to go to the different swim meets. At the age of 16, he got his first gold medal for the Paralympics doing a 100-meter backstroke, and two years later earned his silver for a 100-meter butterfly. While he's been going to the University of Cincinnati, UC in Ohio, He's enrolled as an NACC National Association of College Collegiate Athlete and is constantly training for the August 24th Paralympics as one of the first two first male athletes competing with an intellectual with intellectual impairments. Besides his interest in sports, he is in a program at UC that helps individuals with mild to moderate intellectual and developmental disabilities take classes, but also have the support of academic job and campus life coaches. He is studying to become an architectural engineer, which should be as challenging as intending to get the gold in the Paralympics. Yet he has managed to balance out both parts of his life very well enough to succeed in whatever his mind is made up on. I'd like to thank Lawrence Sapp and his parents, Carlton and Dee, for inspiring us all to be who we really want to be. So it seems like this podcast, uh, sort of a subtle theme is about swimming. So Nate, how would you define yourself as a swimmer? <laughs> that's a, a great question so as a swimmer hmm, I'm trying to think of a of a nice metaphor to use here um, I feel like the theme within with swimming at least in this podcast is that swimming represents 
um, so much more than just the sport itself, right? It, in, in this sense, you know, talking to Mindy about, um, about the Little Otter School um, and now thinking about Lawrence Sapp too, swimming, swimming to me feels more like, um, feels more like overcoming your challenges and, and finding a way to continue to push even if you have an upstream battle. And so in that sense, I would say that, yes, I am uh, a good swimmer, but in the sense of just purely uh, ability, as far as swimming goes, um, you know, I have some decent speed, but I don't think my technique is all that great. I think I probably could have used, uh, you know, a, a, certainly a couple of weeks with Mindy as a coach. But uh, what about what about you, Merrick? I'm not great at swimming. Um, I am uh, pretty decent at it. Um, I've been swimming for years, and basically, I feel like um, it's actually probably one of the few things I feel like I can do competently and without feeling frustrated or irritated or just nervous about. Um, and uh, I uh, started swimming, um, I may have been actually at around the age that Mindy was talking about, um, like three or four years old. I may have been that when I started swimming, but then again, that was in 86. So um, I, I, well, I don't know. I could have been around that age, um, but I remember going to my, uh, grandparents uh, apartment uh, it's called the promenade in the DC Bethesda area and I would swim in this humongous pool that they had and uh, whenever I would go on vacation I was always look forward to whatever crazy pools I would be swimming in or and it was more than just swimming it was having fun with my parents having fun with other people just basically, you know, communicating and socializing, just being in the water. Um, you know, after a while, the pool would feel really, really cold, but getting your head in and getting used to it just felt so good after a while. And uh, it, it was just, you know, when I was, I hate to say this, but when I was like eight or nine, one of my favorite things was how much weight you lose when you're in water so i would yeah. take my father who's a who's a pretty big guy and i would take him and i would throw him into the pool i would just like take him and i would be underneath him i would just heave him up and i would throw him <laughs> into the pool and it was just i would always love doing it because you know water knows it's like it's like the weight completely dissipates when you hit water and so and and when I'm on ground of course I, I could never do that to my father but when I'm in the pool of course I can like lift him up and throw him and do whatever you know so it, it always would uh feel really really good and I would just uh you know I think that uh, I I think that that's uh, a very good way to describe myself, and uh, 
I would always be in a community which had its own swimming pool. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just, uh, something that's very, very fun. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that probably the best way to, uh, give a message at the end of this story is to basically say, you know, one of the, uh, biggest heroes, one of the biggest neurodivergent heroes in, uh, film history is the swimmer herself, you know? And it was the second movie that she actually got her chance to shine. And that's uh, Dory from the Finding Nemo uh, slash Dory series. And she, of course, was neurodivergent because she had short-term memory loss and basically um her big thing in life was no matter what obstacle no matter what you know happens to you in life you just keep swimming um things may be things may be heavy things may be completely out of your reach but if you keep on swimming you will find something out sooner or later you if you just keep swimming very wise and true words. Yeah. I like that, how you close that off. Yeah. So my second story is basically because uh, actually today is, I believe, the first day of school for the lower and upper schools um, on, uh, on the L Center of Excellence campus. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know... It's been mandated that uh, that when people return to school, that it's going to be all in person education. So what I wanted to do for the second story um, is to um, is that while for some people it may be easy to remember the standard curriculum that the student is returning to for other people can be very difficult, no matter whether it's the student or the parent. It's been, it's been a while for certain students and parents to uh, go to in-person learning again. So here are 10 interesting tips for those going back to school, inspired by the Marcus Center for Autism and UC Davis Health. The first one is to start by talking about school with your child. Remind the child that school is starting soon and begin setting expectations together for the new school year. If you know some of your child's classmates, consider scheduling a play date for them to reconnect before summer break ends. The second one is to begin reinstating some of the nighttime routines and morning routines that will need to be in place as school starts. Use visual supports like photos or checklists if needed, so children know what the steps of the routine are. The third one is to practice wearing a mask, especially now. Many kids will not be used to wearing a mask for hours and it may be unfamiliar and uncomfortable. Have the student wear one at home for short periods and gradually increase it to get them used to keeping it on for, significant, for a significant time. Start preparing early and make it fun. Make an event of purchasing new school supplies and clothes. If you can, incorporate sensory-friendly supplies and tools like a fidget spinner to help your child cope. Make sure that new clothes are comfortable and washed and that new shoes have time to be broken in. Reconnecting with kids and helping them to feel safe and secure at school will be key. 
And the best way to do that is to establish clear expectations, schedules, and routines, and to focus on children's strength and, strengths and interests. This will help kids be available to learn, and when their strengths are recognized and their interests are incorporated into learning, they'll be more motivated to engage. The sixth one is to help them get comfortable again with the building and school grounds before in-person instruction begins. If you can, visit them on the weekend day and walk around if possible, helping the student to reacclimate. Another way to do this is to use a social story like one from Autism Little Learners, which I will present later, which illustrates the changes students may experience, like the teacher wearing a mask or desks being farther apart. If possible, allow your child to have an on-site practice day to help them prepare for the new routine. Take pictures of your child's school routine and teachers to incorporate into a social story for her. Be patient. There will be a period of acclimation, of acclimation and educators and therapists will first need to make sure the student is stabilized. It's really important not to push too hard too fast as it might overwhelm and discourage many students as they readjust to being at school. After the school year begins, be on top of your child's progress. Make contact with all your child's instructors in the first three weeks of school. This enables you to track how your son or daughter is progressing and let school staff know you are interested and invested in your child's success. Last but definitely not least, try to relax. All children can pick up on their parents' anxiety. If you can keep yours in check, it will help your child stay more calm on that all-important first day and throughout the school year. So, Nate, I know that for some people, this uh, many of these points on the list will feel antiquated or will not be necessary for them to look at or to follow because, you know, some schools may have started now. And so it's, there's not a sure thing that... Uh, you know, some of these steps may even be needed. Um, but I, I think it's still valuable to have these on the on this episode of the podcast, especially if, um, you know, if <clears throat> if students are uh, going to go back to school in person. And it could be going back to school in person for certain like uh, counties, maybe later in the month, maybe September. I don't know, but I, I, I do believe whenever we broadcast these podcast episodes, they are of a wider reach than within Palm Beach County where we're uh, stationed in. Yes. So, um, Nate, any more tips you are able to add? First of all, there's so much value in these tips and this is going to be an unusual school year for a lot of people. Um, you know, a lot of students the last year and a half have been tuning into their education virtually. And for those who are going back, I think a couple points on here are, are really, really important and, and especially useful for parents to try to implement. Um, I think the one relating to reinstating some of the routines, both at nighttime and in the morning. These are so, so very important. Um, I mean, especially when it comes to a student being well-prepared um, and in a good mental state for learning, sleep is as important as anything. So a lot of us, um, you know, have been in a little bit of a different mode, developing some different habits. 
with the, the virtual meetings and virtual learning, you know, we can wake up uh, <laughs> some of us five, 10 minutes before the meeting and, and, you know, be okay. But when it comes to being ready to, to transport somewhere in person, it obviously takes a lot longer and hopefully we can, you know, if we're not doing it currently, reinstate some better habits, like having a good breakfast, allowing proper time to, you know, allow the mind and the body to wake up in the morning. I would also add in a one tip that I'd add in that I think is especially useful and some schools are starting to implement now is um, if you can, you know, have your child before school, maybe engage in some kind of uh, morning meditation exercise or some kind of physical exercise to really help uh, just get them woken up and, and that much ready to start the day. And this also has a great influence on reducing anxiety levels. So that's, that's probably where I'd go, but I think these are really solid 10 points um, that parents can look to in this uh, important transition that we're all getting back to. Yeah, I think that the, the idea of meditation, uh, you know, very early on um, in, the, in the school day, I think, yes, it is. It's important to, to have like transition uh, procedures and protocols in mind because, you know, you're, you're not, you're going from this friendly, you know, home and atmosphere and you're maybe talking to your fellow students and the like. And then you have to go into this building for instruction and, you know, a little bit of a mellowing out before the instruction is started, I think, for the day is, is that sounds like a, a good idea. Yeah, definitely. And you just alluded to something else important, which is having face-to-face -face interactions with your classmates. And that's where whether it's meditation or some kind of team building exercise to help, you know, all the classmates get connected and once again, feel comfortable and, and just put forward a friendly atmosphere. That's, that's going to be really useful. Well, you want to know what I did when I was going to high school, it would probably drive you nuts if I told you this. <laughs> Let's hear it. Eventually uh, when I was going to high school, I decided that, I would do my own sense of therapy and it wouldn't be like listening to music on like earbuds or something while in class, I would sing to myself constantly. I would start, uh, uh, I would start a class period singing to myself. I think even when the teacher was uh, speaking, I would sing to myself. Um, you know, if anyone would ask me, like, what is one thing that I do that would be considered to be verbal stimming, that would be singing to myself. And I would do that because that would get me engaged. And personally, for me, I was getting great grades in school. I was like constantly on the honor roll and this and that. I was like very, very committed, but I would still sing to myself because I was like, you know, uh, there was like a part of me that felt kind of a little bit bored by things. So I would just do that so that I can multitask. I can have something fun to do while I'm also concentrating on the serious aspect uh, of the school time. 
So even if they did like meditation at the beginning of the of the school year, I would just basically sing to myself while I was meditating. And I think a few students near me would get really, really annoyed when I would do it. But everyone else was like not even paying attention to me doing it. It was just like I, I, I remember the individuals who would get really, really annoyed. But um, I just to me, um, that was when music was becoming more and more a part of my life. And, you know, how it is with people who are really attuned to play, no pun intended, to playing with guitar. They would, uh, you know, they would play a guitar while they're talking to you and you would be like, what's going on here? Why aren't you listening to me? You're busy strumming your guitar while you're talking to me. And it doesn't even have to be a song. It could just be strumming a guitar. I've talked to many musicians and that's what it feels like. It's like, okay, well, can you put that away and we can actually talk? So in a way, because I couldn't play an instrument, but I could sing and I love singing to myself. I wanted to form a band in high school and I wrote, started writing songs at that point. That was, I guess, my way of uh, playing my guitar while uh, this other person was talking. So yeah, my excuse, okay. It's not exactly a great one, but it's a way to excuse my poor behavior back then. Hey, you, you called it verbal stimming. I would just call it serenading your classmates. <laughs> well, I didn't know it until I heard myself played back when I did Twist and Shout um, for like a <laughs> Beatles fest around that same time. I would leave the Beatles fest. I would have the CD in my hand of me doing like a karaoke version of it where I would sing the John Lennon part, the lead vocal. And I would be in the car uh, heading back and uh, I would I would have it played. And I thought I was doing like these fantastic, like guttural screams and just shouting and yelling and screaming and just basically scream my head off. And it sounded like the worst thing possible. I mean, <laughs> you know, how you can call Tom Waits an acquired taste. You can call some of those punk rock groups from the 70s and 80s an acquired taste. Death metal an acquired taste. You know, hardcore an acquired taste. But what I was doing could not even come close to, like, even being remotely listenable. Um, <laughs> if you're familiar... If you're familiar at all with music history and you know about Lou Reed's Metal Machine music, which is just like an hour's worth of just a lot of clinking and a lot of metallic noises and all this stuff going on for the whole album. No vocals, no lyrics, just a lot of abstract feedback going on. I would have to say that what I sang on that tape was more listenable, was less listenable than Metal Machine music. <laughs> so it was it was terrible and from then on I would keep on singing when I would work and it would get me acclimated and it would help me along and I would but I I think I dropped the notion of ever being a front man in, in a rock band at all because I I realized at that time that I couldn't sing I've gotten a little bit more tolerant of my voice since then, but I, I still do not have this. I mean, only in my wildest fantasies could I imagine myself singing 
uh, in any kind of group or any kind of band or anything like that. So I, I, I'm just, uh, I'm a songwriter now or a lyricist, but I'm definitely not someone you would get to go up on stage and sing all of my songs. That, that just doesn't sound like something that, that could happen. Well, maybe we'll have to put you back in school and, and then we'll hear, we'll hear some songs, right? <laughs> right? Well, I mean, you know, that's why my, that's why when you go to my website, um, and you listen to the songs on there, that's why none of the songs on there are sung by me because I just have a very low impression of my voice. And I feel like the greater commercial success will happen if even in the demo, people would hear someone else sing other than me, because I am just not good enough to sing. So. Well, you are an amazing songwriter and also a writer in general. And hey, maybe you'll uh, you'll learn to love your voice more in time. Yeah. So, um, anyways, um, that was uh, great information, Nate. And uh, I I do believe that you gave some uh, great points. And I think that uh, you know anyone who is uh, dreading the beginning of school again. Uh, the points that I uh, spoke about and the points you made, Nate, would be a great companion to any student who uh, is thinking about the return to in-person instruction at the school. may not even be uh, meant completely for someone with autism. It could be for any child to feel such a culture shock from having to uh, go through this all all over again after not experiencing it for a while, or it could be the first time that the child actually is doing in-person instruction. And with like no, maybe no uh, prior experience or knowing, you know, what it's like to uh, even have that life exist. So um, anyways, um, thank you so much for, for adding on to the, the list, uh, doc, uh, Nate, or I should just call you Dr. Shinnok because that's what a doctor does. No, Nate is perfectly good, Merrick. Okay. We're, we're friends and podcast hosts. Nate, Nate does just fine. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I want to, I want to also just say, um, you know, on behalf of the four autism podcast, we wish, all of the students, parents, and teachers, best of luck as you start this school year. Um, make sure to learn, to teach, and most importantly, have fun and grow together. Yeah, definitely. Uh, school shouldn't be seen as, you know, a prison or a jail or, you know, some way in which you're basically going to be belted with schoolwork over and over again you know you're you're being presented with very interesting subjects very interesting uh programs very interesting presentations uh taught by probably some of the most interesting people in the world and you're getting together with uh people who you know you'll end up having memories for the rest of your life all about you know 
Yes. This this isn't something that's just in, in a bubble. You know, I, I actually spoke to an old uh, uh, friend of mine from school. You know, we, we went all the way back to my elementary school days in Serona Park, Maryland, and we brought things back up on Facebook and we had a really, really, really nice conversation, you know, and it was a school building that brought me together with so many people, uh, not hardly anything else brought me together with anybody as much as the school building did. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, um, uh, before, uh, you know, because it is getting to the point in which I'm sure that I'm hearing your stomach rumbling, Nate. <laughs> All right. So uh, before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in September with some more coverage on us and the autistic community in general. So how do we stop? So how do we end our podcast as usual. Oh. Let's do it together. <laughs> I got excited. For... I wish that I could fly so high. Oh, like a bird. Fly. I fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. A moth is a butterfly without any colors, but what's beautiful is what's inside. Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide. Well, I'm just a caterpillar crawling around. Knowledge in my head, but my feet on the ground. Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky, like a butterfly. I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. Like a bird, I was meant to soar. I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours You can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind In the future your eyes will light up To think that I was once a poor catapult Will grow up and take to the sky Like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly so high Oh, like a butterfly I'll fly into the air so high, jump like a butterfly.
be so high Cause I'm a butterfly I'm flying through the air So high